I want to start today before we speak directly about enemy love in looking at some of our shared history as followers of Jesus. All of the history of the church belongs to you as a disciple of Jesus. Now, that's not always good news, but sometimes it is. And in a moment where we can easily not be rooted and anchored, in a moment where being transient, in a moment where culture's changing at light speed all around us, sometimes it's really helpful to remember that you're caught up in something, you're swept up into something that goes back to the very beginning of time and that has had cultural manifestations all over the globe that's not just an American thing, that's not just a Midwestern thing, but that is, that is the truth of God being embodied by people in communities just like this community. A long time ago in 249 AD, Roman Emperor Decius began an, an empire-wide persecution of Christians. Christians during this persecution lost their houses. They lost their jobs. Christians were arrested. Many Christians were beaten. Some Christians were executed. And there were some Christians that signed documents to avoid persecution, declaring that they had honored the Roman gods around them. In the midst of all that pain and all that suffering, by the time you got to 250 AD, the persecution had effecti effectively ended, but the pain had not. Christians were limping in the empire. They were recovering in the empire. They were wrestling with really deep questions about unity. Like, what do you do with a brother or a sister that walked away from Jesus and signed documents that their allegiance was with Caesar as God when they wanted to come back to church? How did you relate to them? In the midst of the pain, how do you relate to your pagan neighbors who Jesus told you to love when what you got from them in the last 12 months was the deepest suffering that you'd ever known? How do you walk across the street and talk to people that look like you but believe something radically different from you who turned you in to the police as a follower of Jesus? What do you do in the marketplace if you're a businesswoman trying to make a transaction with someone in the city who just 12 months ago wanted to see you thrown in jail for practicing your faith? in the midst of the pain and the grief and the loss and looking around rooms that weren't as full as they were the year before, Christians were trying to figure out what was next. And in the midst of that pain and difficulty, things didn't get easier, things got worse. Instead of a time of peace and prosperity following the persecution, plague hit the Roman Empire. And now, Christians and pagans alike were dying from diarrhea. They were vomiting. They were covered in open sores. Their flesh was rotting. And these sick people who didn't have medical facilities, who didn't have proper care and nursing, who were incredibly contagious, were literally being stacked in the streets as they took their last breath. 
accounts of this time are really terrifying. There were people who were still clinging to life, begging for mercy as people walked by them on the sidewalks of Rome. As a follower of Jesus, how were you to respond? What was the church to do in this crisis? What do you do as a follower of Jesus when you're still trying to recover from losing everything in the midst of persecution and now your family is being struck with plague? I want to read an excerpt from an amazing book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church that explains what Christians did in the North African city of Carthage. Let me read this to you. It's a bit lengthy, but it's profound and beautiful. As Cyprian later wrote, Cyprian was the bishop of the city of Carthage. Some Christians were upset when they observed that the power of this disease attacks our people equally with the pagans. Cyprian would have none of this. In his sermon, he simply reminds the people that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, had said that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And by extension, the plague could easily descend on everybody without distinction. The question for Cyprian was not why the plague had broken out, but how Christians should respond to it. And Cyprian, acting under pressure in this critical moment in his community's history, drew reflexively on his community's text and tradition and on his own favorite themes. According to Pontius, who was Cyprian's biographer, Cyprian then went further in addressing his Christian community, no doubt stretching his hearers. Cyprian drew on biblical texts that were at the heart of his theology of patience. He especially gave voice to the words of Jesus, whose advice and encouragement in the Sermon on the Mount spoke to them in their desperate crisis. Drawing on these resources, he urged his people to respond to this time of danger and suffering by imitating God. It is not at all remarkable if we cherish our own brethren with a proper observance of love. Instead, Christians should do more than the publican or the pagan. They should overcome evil with good. They should exercise a divine-like clemency, loving even their enemies, praying for the salvation of their persecutors. For God makes the sun to rise and fall on all people, not merely on his own friends. And shouldn't one who professes to be a son of God imitate his example as a father? Cyprian's flock were deeply schooled in Jesus' teachings that they should love their enemies. And Cyprian extended this teaching by applying it to the provision of crisis nursing for our brothers, but not only our brothers. You Christians, you are my people and my flock. You know the mercy of God, and you demonstrate this by providing visits, bread, and water, for other believers who are suffering. And I praise God for your faithfulness. Now I am calling you to broaden your view, to exercise 
a divine-like clemency by loving your pagan neighbors. Visit them. Encourage them. Provide bread and water for them. I know that in recent months, some pagans have been involved in persecuting you. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation and help them. You are God's children. The descendants of a good father should prove the imitation of his goodness. What happened in the city of Carthage in 251 was not just a radical experiment in social ethics. What happened as these Christians risked getting plague by feeding and clothing and nursing the very people who declared themselves their enemies by persecuting them, what happened in that city was a miracle of God's kingdom breaking out on earth. What happened in that city was not just religious piosity. It wasn't just religious people doing what's natural to religious people. What happened is those Christians loved and served their pagan neighbors, even though those neighbors hated the Christians. What happened was a reflection of the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enemy love is not a natural human thing that good people can figure out how to do. Enemy love is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened a long time ago in that North African city that's so beautiful is something that can happen and should happen and will happen today by God's grace people started looking like their father in heaven who loved his enemies so much that he sent his son to die for them. And so today what I want to do is we talk about loving our enemies. I want to start with a really difficult phrase that begins Jesus's teachings on ethics. So as Jesus talks about speaking truth and loving your brothers and being reconciled to people that hurt you and walking in sexual fidelity and keeping the covenant of marriage holy, and then in the climax of his teaching tells us that we shouldn't just love people that love us, but even love and pray for our enemies. Jesus begins this lesson with a verse that's really weighty, and he ends this lesson with a verse that's even more perplexing. Here are those two verses. Let me read them, and we're going to talk about them. Jesus said, in verse 20, these words. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the last verse that Jesus says before he starts talking about what it looks like practically to be his disciples. How his disciples deal with sex and money and revenge and forgiveness. And Jesus closes this section with his ethics of the kingdom by this crazy statement. He ends chapter 5 with these words. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
These are two of the hardest things ever written by anyone in the history of humanity. What is Jesus talking about? What's he driving at? And why does he sandwich practical Christian ethics, kingdom ethics, between these two weighty, perplexing, and at times despair-creating verses? What is Jesus doing here? Let's start with the first verse. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite of Jesus' day. And yet, Jesus again and again in his life and ministry calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Now, today, 2019, when we use the word hypocrite, we're talking about somebody that says one thing and does something different. A hypocrite is someone that claims to be pure and then does things that are impure. A hypocrite is one that looks down on people that break their word and then breaks their word. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were hypocrites, but they were different in their hypocrisy than the kind of hypocrisy we're used to. It wasn't as much that the Pharisees said one thing and then they did something different. The hypocrisy that Jesus is enraged over is that the Pharisees even though they kept the letter of the law, even though their obedience externally looked pretty darn close to perfect, they're hypocrites because their actions are not connected to their hearts. They don't really love God. They don't give because they are captured by the beauty of God's generosity. And they don't really love people. They may do religious deeds and they may preach great sermons and pray long prayers, but they don't have God's heart for people. They're hypocrites because they're not integrated in what they do and in who they are at the core of their being. Jesus is calling out that kind of hypocrisy and he's holding up a new way, a different way, a kingdom way that's a way of wholeness. What Jesus is talking about is he speaks about lust and speaks about truth-telling and talks about loving your neighbors and points us to reconciliation instead of revenge. What Jesus is doing is holding up this new way, this radical way, this grace way where the grace of God so captures people's hearts in Jesus that what they do actually starts to flow out of who they are. Jesus, for the first time, is offering humanity a new way to be human in which we can be an integrated whole where our hearts and our words, our hearts and our actions line up in a way that reflects God's intent for men and for women since the beginning. Jesus wants to make people whole. This is radically different than the two perversions of this that we see so frequently. Um, It's possible to have heart religion, heart religion, that doesn't affect any of our actions in the world. We see this all the time, man. Like, it's popular to say, it's just about my heart. It's just about my heart. I have a heart for God. I love God. I love Jesus. And not have that heart reflected in the things that we do in the world. Right? We hear this all the time. Uh, some person that claims to be a Christian that talks a lot about their heart, talks a lot about grace, just damages people all around them. Right? I see this all the time in Christian leadership. You hear this phrase all the time. Well, he means well. He's got a good heart. What we really mean by that is that's a person who's disintegrated. That's a person whose heart may have 
sentimental feelings, whose heart may emotionally dig Jesus, but whose actions bring destruction and devastation to their families and their community, their actions don't line up with their hearts. And that's a kind of hypocrisy, that's a kind of lack of wholeness that Jesus is addressing in this sermon because Jesus wants hearts and lives to be a whole. Amen. Now, there's another way that we totally blow this up, and that's when all we have is behavior modification and no heart. Right? And we've seen that in the Midwest all the time, right? Like we live in the Bible Belt. And so often in the Bible Belt, people think that morality is the end-all, be-all following Jesus. So as long as you don't do obviously bad things, as long as you're a pretty good stand-up guy, as long as you pay your taxes and you don't kick your dog, as long as you don't flip people off in traffic, it doesn't really matter what's going on in your soul. This is a kind of religiosity that has no soul. It has no soul. There's no heat to it. There's no passion to it. There's no compassion to it. This is the kind of religion that can talk about hell and not really care that anybody's going there. This is the kind of religion that can condemn people that are outside of the mainstream religious norms of the Midwest that can throw rocks at them without ever having the weight of grace grab them that what separates us from them is nothing but mercy. What Jesus is doing in this sermon, man, what he's doing with this new way to be human is so beautiful. He's restoring humanity by his life and by his death and by his resurrection to a place of wholeness where our hearts and our lives for the first time can start to line up and be unified. And isn't that what you want Like, isn't there part of you that just knows that your life is fractured, that your life is disordered? Isn't there part of you that knows that the external stuff you're trying to do to be good is not translating to a heart that loves what's good? Haven't you tasted that being prideful and religious and looking down on other people with condemnation, with pride, with arrogance being a harsh critic, being a harsh judge, haven't you experienced that that hasn't resulted in a soul that burns for God? What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount with his ethical teachings is he's bringing together our bodies and our souls in the way that God always intended. That's why he talks about sexuality. That's why he talks about truth-telling. That's why he talks about reconciliation. That's why he talks about the way that we're to navigate our relationships. Jesus wants us to be whole. And so he says, hey man, your righteousness has to be better. It has to be of a different kind than the Pharisees because they're masterful at external religion, but their hearts are not transformed. Their hearts aren't different. And then Jesus closes this ethical teaching with this verse that's even harder than the first one. Like, not only does your righteousness have to be of a different quality and kind than the Pharisees, but Jesus says this, what the heck does this mean? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like, that's a verse that if you don't understand what he means, if you don't read it in context, that's a verse that's going to do nothing but drive you to despair. 
Because in our culture, what we think perfection means is flawlessness, right? Being perfect is to be flawless. And the scripture teaches again and again that like you're not going to be flawless in this life. What does Jesus mean when he says that we're to be perfect like God is perfect? Well, he can't be talking about mathematical perfection, right? And keep in mind the crowd that he's talking to, these are the outsiders. They're the misfits of Jesus' day. These are people that are profoundly, profoundly outside of what it looks like as a Jewish person to be normal. Jesus is speaking to the rejects and the outcasts, people that are marked by their imperfections, so what does he mean? Well, here's what I think he means in context. It means two things. Jesus, first of all, in saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is talking about the wholeness that he wants for his disciples. The Greek word that we've translated as perfect is teleos, teleos. And that Greek word in Jesus' day was used to describe wholeness, or maturity, wholeness or maturity. And this is deeply related to Jesus's understanding of the Old Testament commandment found in Leviticus 9.2. Let me read it to you. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You, Israel, should be holy because God is holy. And now Jesus is saying, he's paraphrasing with new words and a different emphasis, but with the same heart, he's saying you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, meaning you're to be an integrated whole. Because listen, and get this, holiness, holiness, which is about being set apart from things that are not holy, is not just being set apart from what's not holy, Holiness is being set apart to what is holy. Holiness is not just about not being devoted to crime, to lust, to greed. Holiness at its very heart is being devoted to God. What Jesus is doing in this verse that's amazing is he's again giving a snapshot that his people in his community under the rule of his kingdom, empowered by his grace, are being invited into a life of wholeness where they love God with their actions and their affections and their minds and their hearts. Jesus wants for his disciples an undivided allegiance. Like Jesus doesn't just want your heart. Jesus wants your body. And Jesus doesn't just want your body. Jesus wants your mind your capacity to reason and to think. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's talking about a kind of wholeness, a kind of wholeness because God is whole. God is unified. What God says and who God is isn't divided. God's integrity and God's actions aren't divided. This leads us to the second thing he's driving at. He says, you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's talking about discipleship in his kingdom, making children look like their father in heaven. And this is a thread in this whole sermon that we could easily miss. Listen to these things that Jesus says. In verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? 
sons of God. In verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In verse 44, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be called sons of your Father who is in heaven. And in verse 48, the climax of chapter 5, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we connect this to enemy love, I want you to get this. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is this radical thing that would have shocked his hearers, and that's this. Through the work of Jesus, God is inviting people to not just worship God as servants, but to know God as children. In our particular day of pop psychology and Teachers and thinkers like Oprah shaping the way you see God and self more than the Bible. We're kind of like, well, yeah, of course we're children of God. Like, yeah, if there's a God, I'm obviously his child. Of course, duh. Yeah, we're children of God. God, whoever he or she is, is certainly my parent because I'm pretty awesome. And the greatest problem in human culture is that some people just don't yet know how awesome they are. And the problem with that, listen, the problem with that is that if you just read these words of Jesus, that the Sermon on the Mount is inviting you into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus that starts to form you to look like God as Father, if you miss that, you'll miss the scandal of the gospel and you'll never, ever, ever really love your enemies. Because as long as you take for granted that you're God's child and that you're basically awesome when somebody hurts you, you will give them what you think they deserve. If you take for granted that you're a child of God, and if you take for granted that in essence, you're basically an amazing person and God's lucky to have you on his squad, when somebody rejects you and hurts you or slaps you or steals from you, you will think that you're well within your rights to exact whatever kind of vengeance makes you feel better about your offended dignity and honor. But what we need today to love our enemies is a biblical anthropology. You need to know what people really are. People are two things, and you can't miss these two words, and you can't get these two words out of order. If you were to sum up humanity with two words from a biblical perspective, your first word would have to be loved loved. And your second word from a biblical perspective would have to be sinners. And if you only have one of those words and not both those words, or if you reverse the order of those words, you'll never understand the scandal of the gospel and you'll never have the gospel fuel you need to not give people what, you des- what they deserve, but to give them the love that you didn't deserve. Because when you see that human beings are first loved and second sinful, you'll start to see more about God than what you've ever seen before. Because enemy love, listen, enemy love is the gospel. We weren't basically good people that needed a little bit of help along the way. 
We just need a little nudge to make better choices. So God sent his son to be an example for us. The gospel of Jesus tells us again and again that we were fully alienated from God in our sin. I hated God. I didn't know I hated God. But the very default position of my life and heart was that I just wanted his stuff and I didn't want any of his interference. I wanted to take the body he gave me and have freedom to do whatever I wanted to do, even if it was an affront to his dignity. I wanted to take money and relationships and act like they were mine with no greater purpose or order for money and relationships. We've all by the very default position of what it means to be a human, we've all tried either explicitly or implicitly to wave a magic wand and make God disappear. And what the Bible would say that is, is enmity. It's hostility. We've kicked God out of his place of authority a million times by the time we're 10 years old. And it doesn't get better when you go to college. It doesn't get better when you settle down and build a respectable life and find a nice career and get the house you always wanted. Repeatedly and at every turn, we have flipped God the middle finger and told him to leave us alone. And instead of giving us what he knew we deserved, He sends Jesus, who's not an angel or a messenger or just a prophet or just a good holy teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus says, if anybody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. You know who did that really well? Jesus, he offered his face to be struck and his beard to be pulled out by his enemies to bring them into the love of God. Jesus says, if anybody takes your cloak, give him your tunic. Jesus was stripped completely naked and offered up all of his clothing so that his back could be beaten. Jesus says, if somebody conscripts you, which Romans would do to Jews all the time, force you to go one mile, offer to go two. Has there ever been a greater distance traveled for an enemy than when Jesus left heaven to come to earth and marched up to the place of crucifixion with a cross on his back? Jesus says, give of those that ask you Has there ever been anybody that gave debtors more than what God gave us in Jesus with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? So like if you take, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. If you take that as an abstract ethical idea, divorced from the person and work of Jesus, it's just going to be another law that you're never going to be able to keep. 
But if you see that the very heart of the gospel is that we were God's enemies and God didn't want to have it that way. So he sent his son, Jesus, to die for us so that we could be forgiven and washed and not just become servants in his house, but be adopted into his family. When you start to see that that's the beating heart of the gospel and you stop taking for granted that you've been offered the right to be called children of God by believing in Jesus, that that is grace and mercy that we never could have demanded, it can't help but soften your heart to your enemies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was murdered by Nazis, who loved Jesus and knew that he didn't deserve to be called a son, but he was called a son because of the grace of Jesus, wrote these words. And these words carry more weight than me because I've never been locked up in a concentration camp. So listen deeply. How then does love conquer? By asking not how the enemy treats her, but only how Jesus treated her. The love for our enemies takes us along the way of the cross and into fellowship with the crucified. The more we're driven along this road, the more certain is the victory of love over the enemy's hatred. For then, it is not the disciples' own love, but the love of Jesus Christ alone, who for the sake of his enemies went to the cross and prayed for them as he hung there. In the face of the cross, the disciple realizes that by that, they too were his enemies and that he had overcome them by his love. It is this that opens the disciple's eyes and enables him to see his enemy as his brother. He knows that he owes his very life to the one who, though he was his enemy, treated him as a brother and accepts him and made him his neighbor and drew him into fellowship with himself. The disciple can no longer perceive that his enemy that even his enemy is the object of God. The disciple can now perceive that even his enemy is the object of God's love and that he stands like himself beneath the cross of Christ. God asks us nothing about our virtues or our vices, for in his sight, even our virtue was ungodliness. God's love sought out his enemies who needed it and whom he deemed worthy of it. The gospel is enemy love. And to love your enemies is to fulfill that saying, like father, like child. Like father, like child. What happened in the city of Carthage is Christians walked across the street and cleaned the wounds of the very people that had taken their homes and thrown them in jail. What happened in that city was the gospel of Jesus Christ being embodied by his people. And what will happen this week, if you're wronged, if you're lied about, if you're treated disrespectfully, if your rights are violated, 
And instead of giving back in kind the venom and hatred that's been given you, if instead you offer back love and mercy and grace, it's not because you figured out how to manage ethics in a really intellectually wise way. It's because the gospel that made you God's enemy, God's child, is working in you to have its desired effect to make you look like your father in heaven who causes his son to shine on the evil and the good. Who makes it rain so that life can grow on the just and the unjust. So today, we have an opportunity to come to the Lord's table as former enemies made children. And that's the gospel. And as we do that in just a second here, what I want you to get afresh today is that God is forming you to look like God. That's what godliness is. And that formation is slower than what we want, and it's more difficult than what we want, and it requires pain. You will never be formed to look like God without suffering. So as you come to this meal today, here's the reality of this meal. This is a tangible, physical reminder that because of the cross of Jesus, Jesus pulled up a chair at the Father's family table and there's a place with your name on it. You were trying to break into his house and steal his stuff. You were trying to kill him so that you wouldn't be restricted in being your own God. And God chose to die so that you could be brought into the kitchen table. And that's amazing. It's awesome. You're so loved. You were so far from God. And in Christ, you've been brought so close to God. And this is a meal of formation where we rehearse the gospel and remember the gospel and ask the gospel, ask that the gospel would form us so that our habits would start to change. Because if you walk out of here freshly aware of and grateful for how much God loved you as his enemy, it'll be way harder for you to give people what they deserve when they hurt you. So if you can, can we close our eyes for a second? A couple of questions. One, if you're far from God, will you come close to him today by trusting in Jesus? You're invited to his table. You're loved. You're, you're loved. If you're aware of all the things in your life that are broken and wrong and off, I invite you to be equally aware today that you're loved. You're seen. God does not delight in giving people what they deserve. He delights in giving them what Jesus deserves. And you can cross the line of faith today and you can get to know God who is love. You can move from enemy to friend. You're invited to do that today. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you're invited afresh to not take for granted that you're called a child of God. It was infinitely costly to God to make that possible because that's how much an enemy you were. And if you've got people that you're harboring resentment towards, if you've got people that you're hoping fall and fail, if you've got people that you're feuding with, if there's people that are saying bad things about you, gossiping about you, slandering you, you have an opportunity to let the gospel of Jesus take root and to offer your enemies what God offered you when you were his enemy. And that's painful, but what could be more beautiful than getting to be like God? God. 